Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. Very, very happy to have you back. And I uh, hope you've enjoyed some of the content that we've put up on the healthogy.com website. That's the word health followed by the letters egy.com or just go to medtechconference.com. Healthogy is the company that organizes uh, the MedTech Conference as well as uh, many other stellar programs. You should check out healthogy.com for our complete lineup. But if you look at uh, healthogy.com or medtechconference.com, you'll see we've got the uh, panel discussions from our MedTech Conference up there for your enjoyment, uh, and they're being enjoyed. So thank you for uh, those who are visiting. I wanted to pull, I think, one of our better panels off, and we've looked at some surveys uh, from our attendees, and uh, this was a very popular panel, and it should be. It was called What It Takes to Win in MedTech, and uh, we were we were blessed to have four stellar leaders in MedTech. We had Michael Ackerman of uh, Oculeve, Andrew Cleland of 12, uh, Mike Demain of Nevro and Keith Grossman of uh, Thoratech. And uh, they were all nominees for our MedTech Conference Innovator of the Year Award, uh, as you saw in a previous MedTech Talk podcast, uh, newsletter. rather. Uh, the award went to uh, Andrew Cleland, but we, uh, we could not have gone wrong. Our, our voters could not have gone wrong with any of the selections. We were uh, so for- fortunate to have them up on stage and uh, they were joined by Tom Gunderson, a uh, former device analyst for Piper Jaffrey. He led a terrific conversation. It was so good, in fact, that I want to hand over the mic to uh, Tom Gunderson and uh, play that interview, uh, which you can also see, you can watch, rather, uh, on medtechconference.com. I want to play that interview here on the podcast and uh, just share it as, with as many people as possible. They covered so much ground, I don't want to take any more time describing uh, how interesting it was. So let's just uh, roll the interview, what it takes to win in MedTech. Welcome, everybody. We've got 30 minutes to um, go through a simple topic of what it takes to win in MedTech. What you saw in the quick videos was um, these guys have done it, and so we're hoping to get some pearls of wisdom that we can go through. And to jump right into it, um, you know, this audience doesn't need to um, know, again, that we need large uh, underserved markets, that we need a regulatory pathway, somebody to pay for it, IP, etc. We're going to try and dig in a little bit and see if we can get some real-world experience. So let me just start um, from my immediate left and down the row. And one of the topics that we've picked is clinical trials, not just clinical trials, but um, Michael Domain, I think you brought this up um, earlier, and that was um, it's more about not just talking about outcomes, but actually delivering Michael, can you talk a little bit about that? So, uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, I, I think it was kind of addressed in the last panel as well. Um, I think, look, I've been doing this for 35 years, and and if you've been doing it that long, you've come from a time when you got the minimum amount of data to secure an approval, and then once you're in the market, then you just made it happen. Uh, but as was uh, eloquently stated in the last panel, I think it's a different environment now. And now it's, it's yes, you have to secure the approval, but you need sufficient data to show that your product brings value to the system and that you're addressing all the stakeholders, both the payers, the physician or the surgeon, 
uh, and uh, and the hospitals. Uh, so as you're collecting that data to secure the approval, doing it in a way, in a manner that allows you to have a dialogue with all the stakeholders is, I think, increasingly important. What did, what did you see that was different uh, at Nebro than maybe wouldn't have been done seven or eight years ago? Well, I, I had a, a... Along those lines. Yeah, I had a, I had a special case uh, in that um, I would love to say that I was forward-thinking and I had all the answers and I plotted it out strategically. At the end of the day, we came along at a time when the FDA had become much more stringent uh, about data requirements to go into the market, and uh, we had to take the first ever true, you know, modern-day pivotal trial in the spinal cord stimulation space. Uh, then they surprised us and informed us it had to be a comparative effectiveness trial. So, as you imagine, there was uh, a lot of consternation on the part of the board and the investors, <coughs> excuse me, uh, that we were going to take a bet-the-company trial uh, and run it for multiple years and see what happened. Uh, when the dust settled, we actually had a very, very good outcome, and we had uh, superiority in all primary and secondary endpoints, and that ultimately has been the primary value driver for the company. Um, but uh, again, I, in, in, in all honesty, uh, we were kind of pressured into it, and, and ultimately that created the primary value of the company. Andrew, um, talk a little bit about how you've seen clinical trials change and um, the decision to, um, to be acquired prior to FDA approval, both on 12 and on Ardian. So I think just to want to um, add to what Mike was just saying that there's no doubt about it, right, that the requirements for clinical trials haven't changed, they're changing. And again, we just heard that a couple of minutes ago that we can't provide you guidance as to what you're going to need to do. It's going to continue to change. So I think that we need to think of this as a suite of tests, a suite of clinical trials. It's not just one big trial anymore. You need to be looking at very early stage feasibility, exploratory work, moving into your definitive trials, moving into your, your market-based trials. And I think that that's an ongoing event. Uh, so why did we decide to, to sell early? I think that was your question. From a clinical um, perspective, I was yeah, thinking maybe... because the choice wasn't ours. The choice was the acquiring companies. And I think that, you know, we're in a good position. I think with, first with Ardian, you know, we had a good randomized controlled trial. We realized the next trial needed to be much larger... It would be better in the hands of someone like Medtronic. Uh, and with 12, it was just very early. I mean, we were six patients when we were acquired, so there wasn't any real thought behind that, to be honest. <laughs> Told you you'd get pearls. Um, Keith, um, the other three gentlemen are going to be talking about their experience with startups. Um, Thortech's not a startup. It was you, you did a remarkable resurrection, according to the video, but it wasn't exactly the overnight success, was it? Uh, I think Thortech was one of the more mature uh, med tech companies out there when it, when it was um, purchased recently. How do you view clinical trials within the scope of a larger, more mature company? Uh, well, I think they're uh, they're still uh, very important. I guess the the message from my standpoint, and, and we all <clears throat> maybe bring one primary message to this topic today in a short period of time, 
is that everybody out there running a company should be planning for the long haul. And there are companies uh, that get acquired after a handful of patients. I think Andrew has run both of them. Um, <laughs> uh, there just there aren't very many of them. And um, anecdotally, I I, uh, I actually what the slide didn't say is I ran Thortech two times. And uh, the first time I started in 1996, the company was already 20 years old, gone public, been delisted and got its first FDA approval after 20 years for a ventricular assist device. It took a long time. It took a lot of capital, uh, at least in, in those days. Uh, the conventional wisdom for that company when I joined was, this is going to get acquired. Just get the product launched. And uh, it's big market. It's heart failure. It's end stage. There's nothing to do for these patients. Very hard to get these products approved and to get them to work. Uh, these are companies that, that have to be owned. Uh, that was the conventional wisdom, which, of course, was true. It, just the timing was a little off. It took another 20 years before Thoratech uh, was actually acquired. And, and in the process, we built uh, a $500 million uh, company, not because that was what somebody drew out, uh, because we had to, uh, because a buyer didn't show up. And I think more often than not, as you build a company in the early stages, you sort of have to assume uh, that you're going to have to be around uh, for the long haul. And I don't see that in the planning often enough for early-stage companies. I think too often we think about what is that next milestone? How do we finance to that first, you know, really dispositive clinical data set? How do we finance to that critical uh, commercial approval? What, in fact, I think the, the answer that you also need to understand is how much cash are we going to consume before we get this business to break even? Because we might have to. Are we a good public uh, uh, markets candidate? If not, how are we going to finance this company? If your board asks you what the strategic roadmap is for your company, you ought to be able to articulate what the thesis is for every potential buyer, who those buyers are, when they would be interested. Are they interested defensively, or are they white space buyers? Are there buyers that have a particular uh, advantage in terms of synergy that would allow them to pay more? Are there buyers that are panicked about another buyer owning your business before they can? And you need to understand that roadmap, and you need to understand how to finance to get to milestones that are not only interesting to them, but that get you to break even uh, in a, uh, a cost-effective manner. And maybe just one more quick anecdote. It has nothing to do with my operating experience, but I'm, I, I have the pleasure of being on the board of Outset. You heard from Leslie Trigg earlier. That was a company that was started as a, as a home dialysis uh, a product. I mean, a pure and, and simple. Along, and it still is and still will be, by the way. But along the way, the market told Leslie and her team, you know what, this may be a lot better device for a new mode of therapy, this in-center self-care that Leslie described. And the company did a, a remarkably good analysis of what it would take to get to market and build a company on the back of either indication. And it was very clear that there was a lot more value to be added by starting with the in-center self-care indication and probably getting to home care over time. And it changed the entire strategy. So you think, well, I'll worry about those big issues later. I've got a, I've got a company just to get started. But in, in that case, it actually informed the development of the product, the features and benefits of the product very early on. So that would be my, sorry, long-winded message to all of you, is you really assume you're going to be at the helm of whatever it is you're starting or building uh, for the duration and, and have a plan. Michael Ackerman, um, talk a little bit about Oculive. And I think you did 200-plus patients um, prior to um, you being acquired. 
How did that fit with the valuation of the company? Sure, and uh, first of all, that's the first time I've come on stage to walk up music, so I'm definitely going to be back next year. That was great. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, we did. So we, and just to echo some of the things that uh, Keith and, and Andrew just said, I mean, we, uh, we, we weren't planning on being acquired. We actually just preemptively were approached by Allergan, and the very things that we were doing for the, really were the best things for the business to advance and be ultimately be a profitable standalone company were the very same things that Allergan was interested in. And we did that in a period of about two years at about 250 patients, and that wasn't a series of eight different trials. And every trial had a, a different goal, right? So we're iterating the product, or in our case, it's a first-in-class treatment. So we had to prove to our board and our investors that it actually worked. We had to prove to the rest of the community and the physicians that it worked as well. Um, we also, some of those patients were uh, for nailing down our FDA pivotal trial, and we were able to, to go to the FDA with really solid data in hand that said, look, we know we can hit this trial design. This is the trial design that we want, and got them to agree to it. Thanks. Um, Michael Domain, let's start again with you, and we'll just kind of keep the same order until you guys um, disperse into chaos and have a conversation among yourselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what I'd like to talk about a little bit is um, we saw the video ahead and you're up for this uh, award and congratulations on that. But basically what we've got here for the audience are the winners of what it takes to win in med tech up here. And yet, and it, when we go through the brief histories, it makes it sound a little bit easier than it really is. So maybe we could um, dive into this a little bit and talk about... Um, a period or an event that um, I would call a fork in the road or a pivot point where a decision has to be made between several different ways of going and you made that decision right or wrong, had to come back uh, or kept going along that arm. Um, give us a sense of what it was like at Nevro, Michael. Sure. Uh, great question. Um, I think I'd point to two forks in the road or pivot points. The first I've already alluded to and that was uh, the decision to do the bet the company uh, pivotal trial in the U.S. That decision, uh, it was a vigorous debate at my very first day on the job. It was a board meeting. Uh, all the smart money in the room said it was sheer lunacy to do that study. Because if you think about it, it at that time, FDA was pretty erratic, not so predictable. So there was that whole element of risk. And then there was the fact that we really didn't know, would we be able to conduct a trial, pass it, get on the market? And of course, if you don't, you basically shut the company and every investor around the table, which is my venture board, uh, would basically zero out their investment. And their view at the time was, wouldn't it be more prudent to sell the company to one of the big companies and maybe we get 50 cents on a dollar but at least we get something back. And um, so that was an intense debate. And ultimately, when the dust settled, we had agreed to go forward with the study. Uh, and it, it ended up being a fortuitous decision uh, for the company. I would say the other pivot point, uh, really, when, when I started in March of 2011, we were one month into commercialization in Europe of the product. So we had a CE mark. 
and we had just made the decision to do the study in the U.S. And I would, I would classify or categorize our go-to-market strategy as any sale anywhere. And that seemed to me to be short-sighted, and we might be able to drive some revenue, uh, but the lack of controls and specificity of the sort of patients that we were going into is something that it felt like it would go to a bad place. And uh, we decided to kind of withdraw and to go to the right accounts and the right patients and make sure that we were delivering superior outcomes in those, uh, in those accounts and in those patients. Uh, ultimately, I was doing that because I wanted to refine the therapy and really know what we had. But secondarily, it was a defensive approach because I lived in fear that I would, after the pivotal trial in the U.S., I would be at a panel meeting in Washington, and I'd have reports of bad outcomes coming over the transom from uh, from Europe or Australia. And I would say that that uh, ended up being a very important but correct decision for the company in terms of value creation. When you do it that way, um, do you end up having to say no to some pretty powerful um, outside the U.S. Uh, physicians or institutions, and, and how did that go? Uh, we, you know, I, I would answer that, Tom, that it, it really didn't occur initially in that we didn't have a compelling data set, so there wasn't a lot of pull from the market, and so there wasn't that tension. Now, that said, I would say that our commercialization in the United States, which commenced basically a year ago today, uh, we are also being very deliberate in how we commercialize in the United States. Again, we're going for peak market share as opposed to a short-term land grab. And in this case, in the U.S., yes, there is a lot of tension, and, and you have to have some uncomfortable conversations with individuals who would like to use the product, but uh, we either aren't in a position to support it properly or we think that account may not be the most prudent uh, customer for us to, to work with. Andrew, on Ardian or 12, uh, give us some insight as to pivot points where you had to make a critical decision one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, when you told me about this question, I think it was last night, mm-hmm. I thought about it, and look, every single one of us in this, in this room has had a major pivot point, at least one, right? There's no straight lines in our industry. And what I thought I'd want to do is turn it around a little bit, that it's the pivots that happen every single day are the ones that are actually important. These major pivots are, are manageable and right they're, they're scary, but there's a lot of thought and action that goes into it. But I think the one that's really important is what happens every single day. Right? The four of us are up here representing a lot of talented, committed folks, and I think that those sort of decisions that happen in the engineering meeting that's going on back at 12 Medtronic right now are the ones that makes or breaks the companies. And so that you need two things, I think. You need to make sure that you have a very talented team. And there's a lot of lip service that goes on to having talent uh, within your organization. I think this is something that we, you, know, you really need to be focusing on. You really have to have exceptional teams. And I think that both 12 and RDN, we've been very fortunate to be able to create that culture. And the second is a very clear sense of mission that everyone across the organization in a very flat organization understands what their role is and what they're doing and enables you to take those you know, those right decisions, because they all add up. We talk about things being a stack up of inches and what makes 
one company different to another company, those little stack-ups are those decisions that you make over time. We're going to take just a, a very quick break uh, to ask you to go to the medtechconference.com or healthogy.com. Sign up for the MedTech Talk newsletter if you haven't already. We will send you our original device content. We'll send you podcasts like this one, uh, except new, and uh, video content as well. It's a, it's a great way to, uh, to keep abreast of what's uh, going on in MedTech, to hear some uh, interesting perspectives and points of view, and uh, also just to keep in touch with uh, what we're doing uh, on the MedTech front. It's, uh, it's an exciting area where we uh, are seeing lots of opportunities. So please go to medtechconference.com and sign up for the MedTech Talk newsletter. Now back to this talk. So let me um, dig on that a little bit from the standpoint of talent is important and you're in the Bay Area and you're lucky to have access to talent. But a lot of the people that I've uh, interacted with out there are, are serial. They go from company to company. Mission changes. I'm curious for the audience, how did you get everyone agreeing to the mission? It's not just standing up the CEO with a PowerPoint and saying, here's our mission, who, who disagrees? How do, you, how do you keep that alive and keep that going in a startup where you've got such a disparate group of people? Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic question. I think that's the key, right, is being able to, to be allowed to, what do we do? I think that we are very clear and consistent in that mission. Uh, it's on a daily basis. We, at Ardin, we set up a set of core principles that we, we worked on. It wasn't something that I set up. It was something that we as a team pulled together, and it, it took us six months. And, it, you know, there's a lot of folks out there now shaking their heads saying, well, you know, why would you waste your time doing that? tell you that in the long run that if you have a core way a consistent way of working together it enables you to be able to bring in folks that actually agree with you there are a lot of smart talented people that i'm sure couldn't work with me with my style but what we wanted to do is make sure that we got a group of people that were very cohesive uh, and that we put you know we had team above self was one of our things and i think it's just consistency making sure that in every decision you make you're referring back to that core mission and so that the, everyone within the organization sees that consistent message being lived, not just spoken about. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, just to, to add to that a little bit in, in terms of how we achieve that at Oculive, I mean, it's, from a practical perspective, it's, it's our vision. Our vision was to be the, the world leader in dry eye treatment. We came up with that as a team and came up with our core values as a team, and then literally staff meeting every single morning, or every Monday, rather, we put up the very first slide. It's our vision on the first, on the first slide. And it's our top five goals, and it's our values. And so every time we come in, everybody sees it. We ask ourselves, we encourage each other to, to be challenged. Is, is what we're doing consistent with, you know, with the vision and what we're, we're doing? The to just briefly on the, the pivot point, we, we did have a very meaningful pivot switching from an implantable device to a handheld non-invasive stimulator. And I think really it was that sticking to that vision of addressing the clinical need and not being tied to, to a, even a technology that really allowed us to, to do that and have a, a reasonably smooth transition through that. So I guess maybe to answer your first question, um, in terms of pivot points, and I agree with Andrew, they're sort of pivot points that are meaningful every day, every week, every month in running a, a company. 
Um, but as I reflect back on those that I think are, are maybe most interesting uh, to this group would be those that were involved with Conceptus uh, during my time there. And, and when I arrived at Conceptus, the company um, had gone public, gone through that, hundred, that magic $100 million revenue barrier and still was a, an independent company. Growth had slowed. The company had never, had never been profitable. Um, in fact, growth had started to go negative. We had some one of those rare cases, I think, at MedTech where we actually had some value buyer interest. There, isn't a lot of, there aren't a lot of value buyers uh, in our space, but we actually had some interest in acquiring the company. We were at our all-time low. Uh, and so we, we had a, an early decision to make uh, when I got there, and that was whether or not it was the best thing to do for shareholders to exit at that time or whether or not there were changes in that particular business model, which is why I had gone there in the first place, that we thought could create more organic value and still create interest among maybe a broader set of strategic acquirers. We decided to do that, admittedly a risk when you're running a public company and you have fiduciary duty to your shareholders, um, but we were able to make some changes in the uh, consumer or the commercial business model and also make some changes in our R&D strategy. And about a year and a half later, we had, uh, I think our second big inflection point was, are we a single product company? There are single product companies who can build um, for a long time very successfully. Uh, I think Thoratech, by the way, would easily have been one of those um, if we'd had that uh, continued opportunity. And there are others where I think the risk is, is significantly greater, and I think Conceptus was actually one of those. Uh, so we had decided if we were to stay independent, diversification was uh, a necessity, and we were really clear-eyed about the risk that comes with uh, diversification. So we took that opportunity to explore what was a continued expression of strategic interest and, uh, and sell the company at that time. So we had really two inflection points, both involving uh, whether or not a change of control uh, acquisition for the company made sense. We made a decision one way at one point, and a year, year and a half later, uh, we made it exactly uh, 180 degrees the other way for those reasons. So um, one last topic that I'd like to hear your guys' um, thoughts on was one of the ones that everybody in the room has to face from time to time, sometimes chronically and constantly, and that is access to capital. Um, Michael Demain, you made a comment to me, and Andrew, we talked a little bit about this last night, and I, th I found it a little surprising. Um, Michael, you were at Medtronic for a very long time. You go to Nevro, the size difference of those companies is vast, and um, your comment was that um, the, the delta between running a startup and running a project at Medtronic is not as great as I might think. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit and then sort of segue into the access to capital question? So I, I think my comments uh, maybe reflect uh, how I manage. Uh, everyone kind of has a different approach. Uh, even within a large organization, my, uh, my approach to the market was to focus on employees, making sure that they were the best of the best, making sure that they had uh, kind of the tools and the guidance on where to go, taking care of customers, and making sure there was a rich new product pipeline. So, I mean, it's kind of basic blocking and tackling. You can do that and should do that in a large organization. 
large organizations sometimes can be replete with you know all sorts of extraneous political stuff and and you have to play that game but if you do it without taking care of the business ultimately it catches up with you and I, and my comments to Tom earlier offline was that really going to a small company and 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 truly it was a startup when I when I went to Nevro um, I found it was all the same. You still had technology you had to manage. You had people you had to manage and hire. You had customers to take care of. Uh, so it's all the same, but maybe you're allowed a little more focus than you might in a larger company. So that, that was really what I was trying to say. Now, in terms of access to capital, so, so in my uh, short six years at Nevro, I've raised uh, $500 million. Uh, it's a lot of money. Um, and I have found that at each step of the way, it's all, they're all looking for the same thing. And we talked about it. Do you have the right organization, the right people to invest behind? What's reimbursement? What is it? What's the data? What are the clinical outcomes? And are they measured, measured well? And are they reproducible? Uh, and and then it's basically, you know, the rest of it is kind of secondary, and they'll check all the other boxes, but that's where they go first, and as long as you can answer those questions uh, with clarity and consistency, and consistency is really important there, you know, the money is there, as we heard earlier today, the money is there, but you've got to check those boxes. Andrew? Sort of interested in what I told you last night after a couple of beers. So, um, I don't remember. And that's, <laughs> and that's different from other nights, how? Um, the, um, uh, it's the access to capital side. And so, uh, Michael goes uh, t- through the process, uh, raising most of that $500 million through public markets and doing an IPO and um, setting up what is becoming increasingly expensive, and that's getting a, a, a sales force together that can sell the product. On your side, if we go back, imagine after the success of RDN that, that 12 might have been easier. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But um, getting started with something as outlandish as RDN started with and then ended up doing quite well, what what was the process of trying to get capital for that company? Yeah, like it, it did get a little easier after Adian, but still lots and lots of no's. Right? We, we all get lots and lots of no's. But going back, I think I've been incredibly fortunate to both of these companies are foundry companies. And so there's a syndicate of investors to start with. And so, and I think at the end of the day, having that syndicate is what provides the ability to then raise further rounds uh, for the capital uh, and they were a sophisticated group too and I think that's also important you know we haven't been in the situation where we've needed to go out and get funds from from folks who, who don't know what the game is and as we were saying before there are a lot of pivots along the way a lot of near near death experiences in these companies and if you don't have that sophisticated strong syndicate you're going to struggle so you know I've been lucky uh, but definitely you know, I remember everyone who said no to me, too. But there's a lot of no's along the way. you see any up there? Yeah, <laughs> I see one sitting two, two steps up from me. <laughs> uh. Sorry, I, I'm still trying to figure out what the hell Mike did with all that money he raised, $500 million. I'm stuck on that. Um, <laughs> 
I, look, I, I don't, it's a great question, but I don't, I don't think there are any magic answers. There, there's always going to be money. I don't care how much, uh, how big the pool is or how small it is for MedTech. There's always going to be money for great teams and great stories. Um, and, it, and it kind of is that simple. Um, so if, if you've got the right business plan, you've got the right story, and you can articulate exactly how you're going to create value, not just with this round, but over the long run, as I said earlier, there's always going to be capital available. Um, you know, provided Mike doesn't go somewhere else and suck it all up at his next venture, uh, <laughs> there will always be uh, uh, money available for great stories. And it, and it really isn't one key here. And I'm uh, sorry if that's what you're looking for, Tom. It really is a whole bucket of, uh, of fundamentals. It's execution. It's having a great story and, and telling it in the, in the appropriate way. Michael Ackerman, you, you were going out and raising money for the first time. How, um, uh, you know, they... They don't know you. Um, they don't know the product area. Uh, what was raising capital like for you? Well, at, at first it was tough. I mean, it's, again, sort of unproven CEO. You had a brand new idea in a, a drug-dominated space. It's, this was, we raised our Series A in 2012. It's not a great time to be, to be raising money in general. Uh, you know, it wasn't also a lot of no's, at least to, to start. And so the original plan, we were going to go out and we were going to raise a Series A, and it didn't quite work out that way, so we backed down to some seed capital and got going on that seed capital. It actually ended up getting some early human data. And then when we went back out, had a lot more successful uh, go of it. It was... At that time, it's, it was, okay, you guys have been at this for a little while. It's, it seems like you're making good decisions. There's a little bit of promise in the technology. And I, I think one thing that was, I, I think, particularly, um, I don't know if unique, but it, I, I think a story we're sharing with regard to the Series A, and just to echo some of the comments this morning about the importance of investors and, and the board, but also having enough power on the syndicate to keep going in the event that you end up in a in choppy water. We had gotten a, a, a lead term sheet from NEA, and it was for two investors. So uh, Kleiner had seen it, seated us, so it was NEA and Kleiner. And at the last minute, Bill Link from Versant came and said, you know, is there any room? And I was like, well, not really. Um, but ultimately, we ended up taking some pretty meaningful dilution as a founding team, uh, one, to get the third investor in the syndicate on board so that we had plenty of money to go the next round or possibly even the one after that if, if necessary, um, but also just to, to get Bill on the board. Um, and that was a really, uh, I think, one of the better business decisions that, that we made. Uh, he was just so incredible on many dimensions, but but also very pivotal in getting our, our deal done with Allergan. Thank you, guys. Excellent discussion. Well, I'm sure you enjoyed that conversation uh, with Tom Gunnarsson leading a great Q&A with four, uh, four stellar leaders in MedTech, Michael Ackerman, Andrew Keelan, Mike Demain, Keith Grossman. We're so grateful they came out to the MedTech conference and that they agreed to participate in that panel. It really anchored the day and uh, I think lifted a lot of people's uh, spirits. It was just a very 
strong, practical uh, advice for medtech leaders, medtech CEOs who are looking to uh, carry their companies uh, up that next step. So thank you again to the participants. Thank you to everyone who attended. And thank you, of course, to our MedTech Talk podcast listeners for joining us today. And I hope you will tune in next week for another MedTech Tale of Innovation.